You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. What I typically like to do is to read back through uh, the passages that we've been covering in those sermons, and so we'll do that today with chapter 17, 18, and 19. So I want to take some time just to read that, just to remind us of the verses that we've been looking at, the passages that we've been studying. So Revelation chapter 17, verse 1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw were ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful." And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the, where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Then into Revelation chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she gloried herself... And lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. 
And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon. For in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wars who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out, As they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads, and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel stood up, a stone like a great or took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeteers will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. Then chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown in alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So we've covered a lot over the last several weeks, 17, 18, and 19. Um, in fact, we were talking a lot about 17 leading up to the last application Sunday, talking a lot about the the theme of sexual immorality that's found in chapter 17 and in chapter 18. And so we had taken a time to kind of step back and see what, what God's word even says is sexual immorality and how we're to interact with those who are guilty of it. And after the last application Sunday, we had discussed the topic of divorce and what scripture has to say about divorce and how if divorce is handled improperly, then sexual immorality results. Okay, and so our summary sentence from that week was we must know what the Bible says about divorce before we were ever tempted with the thoughts of divorce, because if we wait until our heart is bent towards divorce, we will surely read the scriptures differently than they were intended. And so the goal being that we need to know what what scripture says about divorce before we're ever uh, tempted by the flesh to pursue a divorce, that the scripture is very clear about the things that it says. It's very clear about Uh, the consequences or the results of pursuing a divorce that's not biblically justified. And so really challenged everybody to think through what Scripture has to say and tried to show you what Scripture says about this topic um, so that we can be educated and so we can also be uh, equipped to help others that may come to us. That in your workplace, it may not be uncommon for somebody to come talk to you uh, either as... um, kind of a, a confidant, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling in my marriage, I'm thinking about divorce, or somebody comes and says, my spouse is leaving me, how do I need to respond, how do I need to act? Um, probably all of us have either had that or will have that at some point where somebody comes to us seeking guidance and advice about a divorce situation. Very important that we know what scripture has to say, otherwise our emotions will start to drive us in those situations, and that's not always biblical. Okay, so we talked about this topic and we talked about three different points. One, to embrace marriage despite its difficulty. Remember we said that when Jesus kind of presents the, the high standards that he has for marriage and the, um, the really strong encouragement that he has to never pursue divorce and that divorce would only be acceptable in, in a small amount of cases— that the disciples kind of respond and say, man, this teaching's hard. Like, we may not even need to pursue marriage. Like, it might be better to just not pursue marriage. And, and that would be uh, an unhealthy response to Jesus' teaching. So we said embrace marriage despite its difficulty, that while marriage is hard and the expectations for staying married are high, the only ones who should avoid marriage are those who are genetically unable to marry or those who are physically unable to marry, or those who are spiritually gifted and do not need to marry. All right, and so we talked about some of the reasons not to pursue marriage, that there's some things 
physically that may prevent marriage from being a, a healthy choice. But then there's also the spiritual component that Paul talks about, that if possible, stay single. If possible, pursue service to Jesus as a single individual because your time's freed up in ways that it's not when you're married. But that if you have desires for marriage, if your body burns with a desire for marriage, then you should pursue that, that it's healthy, that it's right, that yes, marriage can be difficult, but marriage is a rewarding gift that God blesses his, his people with. Right, And so we talked about embracing it. We talked, number two, about avoiding divorce, if at all possible. That while God has communicated permissible grounds for divorce, he never commands divorce. Thus reminding us that divorce should be avoided whenever possible. Um, we talked about the, the, um, the clause of sexual immorality, that if one spouse is sexually immoral within the marriage, that it does free up the other individual to potentially... Um, pursued divorce, but that that's not an automatic thing that should happen, that, that restoration should be the goal, that, that restoration should be the desire, even though you've been hurt and harmed, that, that working towards restoration should be the goal in, in all cases, um, but that because the, the standards are so high that Jesus sets, it should caution us in two ways. One, to be very cautious when, when pursuing a divorce, to really make sure that we've searched scripture, that we've really sought out what scripture has to say, to make sure that this is um, this can be this is this is a permissible situation, right? And then it also causes us to back up and say, "Man, we need to be really cautious before we ever get married, right?" That because when I step into this, getting out of it is rarely going to be an option. That when I step into marriage, that the goal is to stay married until one of us dies. That the the grounds for getting out of that. Are, are very small, right? So we talked about embracing marriage, avoiding divorce, and then allowing remarriage when permissible. We said the truth there is that the only time remarriage is permissible after divorce is when the divorce was based on permissible grounds in Scripture and all hopes of reconciliation with the previous spouse have been abandoned. Um, and then even Paul would say to stay single if possible after a divorce, unless, again, the, the body and the, and the desires of the individual are to be married, then, then it is permissible if the divorce was permissible, okay? So from an application standpoint, I want to know, are there any remaining questions about divorce and remarriage that we could tackle this morning to help you, especially if you're dealing with a situation where you're trying to help somebody work through this? Because I know since we've talked about this, some people have now encountered it and are having to give guidance and advice to others about this topic. So any questions since we've talked about this that have come up in your mind about divorce, about remarriage that we can talk about this morning and try to clear up for you that you may not be aware of? It's becoming more and more and more and more common um, for us to encounter people in our lives that are going through divorce. And so we certainly want to make sure we're equipped with a biblical understanding of it to help guide people through these type of situations. one of the things that's that I that it was helpful to me was to be able to say okay well what now so if you've divorced and remarried unbiblically or whatever is in the past you're in that state now what what now so mm-hmm. you want yeah so we talked about the fact that um that that some people may have made mistakes now I told you too 
that in all the cases that I know of within our church where divorce has happened, it's always been permissible. That there's nothing in our church that I feel like, man, we need to call this individual to repentance, to confess their sin because this was, this was not biblical, right? So we've had people that have had to, had to kind of go through this journey, um, but in conversations with those people, I believe that people in our church have, have, um, have either been permissible in what has happened or were the recipients of something where the other one was at fault biblically, which then freed them up for remarriage. But if we ever have a case or if you ever have a case where you're interacting with somebody who um, has not gone through the process biblically, man, the reassurance in Scripture is that, is that Jesus is available to, to forgive when confession takes place right, that, that he's our advocate, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, right, and so First John's very clear that, that this type of sin is certainly forgivable, just like all other sins are forgivable, right, and so um, again, I don't think that's the case in our church where anything has been left undone or, or needs to be addressed. Um, if, if I did feel that way, we would certainly do that. We would certainly um, go to those individuals and, and kind of talk through that and and work towards reconciliation, restoration, whatever, whatever would be available. But um, I do believe that people in our church are, are in right standing with God about this issue. Um, but that's not to say that we may not would have people that would come to our church at some point that are not and, and may need to be addressed. Because, man, with the way people can bounce and, and hop from church to church today, um, I've talked with other pastors, it's not uncommon for affairs to happen, divorces to happen, and for people to relocate to a new church without any type of repentance, confession, or forgiveness taking place, right? It's like, well, I can't stay here because everybody knows the details of my situation, so I'm going to relocate somewhere else. We need to be careful about that. You know, we would want to, we would want to call people to holiness if they were to come to our church in that type of situation or that type of setting. But the, the, the encouragement in Scripture is that, is that Jesus forgives um, when people have mishandled this. I know that not long after we had this, um, this particular sermon, I found out that the lady that's moved in behind me, she moved in, she and her husband moved in from <coughs> Michigan or somewhere, and their daughter lives in Sonora area, and they moved down specifically to be near that family. And so I asked her how things were going, and as soon as they moved down here, the, her daughter's husband said he wanted a divorce. And it just seems like when people tell you my daughter's getting a divorce or my so-and-so's getting a divorce or whatever, we kind of gloss over that as a culture and we don't say, well, did they even try to say to get, you know, this is just a neighbor and I didn't want to be too prying and say, <coughs> you know, what happened? I don't know these people even. So, but it just seems like there ought to be things that we can spark conversations about to, to discern, you know, First of all, how can I help you in this situation? Because I personally have been there. So, mm-hmm. but it's just—it's just one of those things where oh, they're getting a divorce, and it's become so commonplace. And and we know that divorce breaks the heart of God. And it's just hard. It was hard to have that conversation because she just kind of like, well, he's leaving and getting a divorce, and you're like, oh, sorry. Yeah, it's definitely more readily accepted. Especially among church people, that's what yeah. bothers me. Is that we ought to be seeking reconciliation. Well, and I think church, churches in general, leadership within churches in general, are not pursuing the the discipline side that needs to come when when someone is pursuing a divorce, unbiblical grounds for that, and just kind of allowing that to play out. Like, 
with the one situation that I'm dealing with, there's been very little, if any, contact from the church leadership towards this individual. It's just kind of a foregone conclusion. Yep, he's pursuing a divorce. We don't like it, but what can we really do about it? You know, but there's no, there's no been, there's been no real effort from that church's leadership to go say, this is not okay, and you won't be in good standing with our church if you, if you go through with this, because this is unbiblical. And because it's unbiblical, what results then beyond that is, is continued sexual immorality, that those conversations aren't happening from leadership towards individuals in the church. And because of that, it's, it's kind of like when you have kids who feel like, okay, or like, for example, in, in, in the school setting, if a teacher's not managing her classroom well, well, then she loses control of her classroom very quickly, right? If, if things aren't being disciplined or addressed, then, then the perception from the kids is, I guess this is okay. Um, and so I think because it's not being addressed in churches that it's becoming more and more rampant. Um, and then I think just the, the way membership takes place within a lot of churches is that those conversations aren't happening when people come in as a new individual to the church. So our membership process here at Sovereign Hope is pretty extensive. There's a lot of opportunities for those conversations and a lot of questions to be asked, whereas in a lot of churches, it's pretty easy to become a member of that church and therefore, that type of lifestyle, those type of decisions go unaddressed, one by the previous church and by the new church. And so that behavior is just continually being tolerated to the point where I think a lot of times when people hear, hey, somebody's getting a divorce, it's like, okay. You know, it, it's just kind of accepted a lot, a lot more today. Um, but that's true about sexual immorality just in general. I mean, Ben sent me an article this week about how just statistics are showing that even people's perception about um, sexual immorality is just changing drastically that um, the standards just aren't there as they, as they have been in the past. I don't, I'm, I'm going to go back and listen to these since obviously I haven't gotten to listen to a lot of what Drew said, but do you mind just pointing me towards the passages you were looking at to state that um, remarriage is permissible in cases of biblically permissible divorce? We looked a lot at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and then just in general, we were looking at Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19 in regards to divorce in general. And then the book that I referenced to everybody um, that I think is a super helpful guide on this topic, The Divorce Dilemma by John MacArthur, yeah, is the book that, that I've relied upon in my own understanding of that topic. But yeah, feel free to shoot me any questions after you listen to that, Angela. Yep. So you said you wouldn't counsel two people that have re-entered into marriage unbiblically to then divorce, right? Yeah, I'd say, so I don't think like once, unless, unless it's a sinful marriage in general as far as like homosexuality goes, right? So... So from that standpoint, if two people have entered into marriage and there was unbiblical cause for that marriage, I don't think that divorce is then necessitated to make it right. I think confession about all the things that played into that needs to take place. Admittance, you know, confession, repentance, brokenness. But I don't think that there's anywhere in Scripture that would say you need to, to divorce then from that. So then there, are, are they... When they're in that marriage, they're in active adultery, right? So I guess my question is, 
So, so if they'd entered that from a previous marriage, got divorced, didn't happen biblically, and now they're married, they're in active adultery. I guess my question is, when does that stop in God's eyes? Is that when they come to repentance? Yeah, or, I think when true confession continually <laughs> happening no matter what. No, I think when true confession and repentance takes place. Yeah. And I think you'd have to really seriously question the validity of that if you're hearing that type of mentality prior to the unbiblical marriage, right? So, like, um, I've heard people say, hey, we're going to do this, and we're going to trust in God's forgiveness as a piece of this kind of thing before it's ever happened, right? So, like, the mentality is, man, we're going to do this, and then we're just thankful that we know God's going to forgive us after we do it kind of thing. It's going to be it's going to be hard for me to say at what point has real confession and repentance happened because you're talking about man, we're going to do this and then we're kind of we're kind of relying on the blood of Christ in a way that's not meant to be taken advantage of like that. We also talked in this sermon too that like Scripture does not seek to address every individual situation that we're going to encounter, and so we said too that's where it's really important to understand the heart of what Jesus and Paul and others teach about this topic so that kind of principles can be understood and then applied in situations that aren't clearly talked about in Scripture. Um, And so it's really important. And that's where I would say, like with the divorce thing, like I don't think it makes sense biblically because biblically there's some passages that would say you can't divorce from that marriage and go back to the previous marriage if it was unbiblical. And so um, we'd be real hesitant about counseling somebody to divorce um, just because the marriage was unbiblical to begin with. All right, let's move on to uh, the next sermon. After that, um, we continue talking from chapter 17 and 18 about just the, the seduction that the world offers. We said from a summary sentence standpoint, and we did two weeks of this, and so we used the same summary sentence for two weeks, and so I just kind of combined all my thoughts from those two sermons into one for this morning. Um, The world is deceptively strong in seducing us to chase after everything but Jesus, but we have hope of victory if our names are written in the book of life and if we choose to separate ourselves from ungodly pursuits. Right, so chapter 17 and 18, the language that's used there is language that's meant to convey to us how seductive the world is. That's why the terminology of, of prostitute and adultery is used so much in that chapter because the goal is for us to see that the world is seductive um, and to really even help us see that, um, that there's a desire that we have for immediate satisfaction, which often is the perspective that comes from prostitution, immediate satisfaction. But as we see uh, or as we know just from uh, accounts of people that are involved in that, there, there's There's great disappointment that comes from that type of relationship, right? Like it doesn't satisfy or doesn't satisfy for very long, which is true of the world. Um, There's a high price to pay too, which is also consistent with uh, uh, prostitution. There's a great price to pay for that, right? So a desire for immediate satisfaction that results in great disappointment but costs a great price. That's what the world is um, and, and what it offers. It's very alluring, but very disappointing in the long run. And so we see that in chapter 17 and chapter 18, very deceptive, but the assurance throughout those two chapters is that if our names are written in the book of life, we can persevere through that. We can resist it 
But there's also human responsibility on our part to separate from it, right? The call in chapter 18 is for God's people to separate from the things of the world. And so from uh, an outline standpoint, we talked about separating from a world that's seductive, that the world's attractive, that it's effective, but the church will be victorious. We see the woman sitting on these many waters, and we said, at the, or John tells us at the end of that chapter, the waters represent peoples and nations and tongues. And so the world is certainly influential, but if your name is in the book of life, you're protected from it. Um, we talked about separating from the world. We talked about preparing for a world that's very murderous. The world is trying to destroy the church. It's trying to ruin as many lives as possible. Um, we shouldn't love it because it seeks to persecute. We talked about Demas and his love for the world and how it caused him to abandon the faith. And so what we see in Scripture is that you can't love the world and God at the same time, right? They don't, they don't work together. And so we don't love the world. Another reason we don't love it is because it won't last. It's coming to an end. And if we do try to love it, it will bring judgment upon us. So we talked about separating, preparing, Number three, we talked about remaining on guard for a world that's resilient and organized. We see in these chapters lots of kings, lots of authority, lots of coming back perspectives. And so we talked about the fact that what we see here is not resurrection like we understand Jesus, right? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus dies, he resurrects, and he comes back again, the same Jesus. What we see with the world is, and that terminology being shifted just a little bit and as far as who was and who is and who is to come, that terminology is different when it talks about the world. The idea there is that the world will rise up and then it will be defeated and then it will come back in a different form, right? And so it's different. It shows a type of resurrection in that the world continues to come back. Governments continue to rise and fall. Governments that persecute the church, governments that hate the church, cultures rise and fall. Cultures that are very seductive and very focused on sinful type things, they come and go in different forms, right? And so we need to be on guard for the fact that the world will continue to cycle through until Jesus comes back. And then we talked about rejecting a world that's terminal. Um, the world is powerful, but only for a short time. It's ultimately self-destructive and it cannot last. God will preserve us, but we must be faithful to separate, right? We talked about um, being very decisive in our break from the world, trying to do things different, okay? Just to kind of reference back to the, the, the section that I'm talking about, it's in Revelation chapter 18. The assurance has already been given that if your name's in the book of life, you will persevere, you will survive. But... Um, Verse 4 of chapter 18, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And so as Christians, we have a responsibility to separate from the world. And so the application from that week was, Have you determined what it looks like for you to love the world too much in certain areas? And have you told someone who can hold you accountable? So my big challenge for you over those two weeks was for you to step back and evaluate what are some things that I love most about this world and what would it look like for me to love those things too much and who can I tell to watch out for me to behave that way so that I can be held accountable, right? So we talked about, um, you know, for me, I talked about what it looks like for me to love coaching football too much. 
And I told you I was guilty of that last year. And I shared with you what that looked like and why I had to step back and step down from my coaching position because I had fallen in love with it too much. And it was becoming a source of self-glory for me. And it was wreaking havoc on my spiritual life. Um, and, and really didn't see that until kind of towards the end of the season when the season ended. And I felt such a disappointment because the glory that had been coming from the season was now gone, right? And it hadn't satisfied me. And so that was an example for me. There's a lot of different things that people can love about this world. And, and we could talk about what it looks like for them to love it too much, right? Like people can love hobbies when it starts to take them away from church involvement during the week, during the weekend, then we probably got a problem, right? Like I know, I know way too many people that have loved their kids so much that they have invested so much in their kids' sports that they're not really involved in church anymore. They can't be because they're gone every weekend to go play in tournaments, to go play and travel, and, and they can't be involved in a local church anymore. If that's not loving the world too much, it's certainly borderline loving the world too much, right? Because it, it's causing the, the, the spiritual side of things to completely be neglected, right? Um, so, so the question for you, and if anybody wants to share, you can right now. Have you determined what it looks like for you to love the world too much in certain areas? And have you told someone who can hold you accountable? Anybody want to talk about any personal application from that standpoint that you've sought to, to do since that sermon? finding our joy um, instead of in Jesus and in everything that he's done for us in things. So in, I mean, it doesn't even matter what it is. It could be, you know, going somewhere on a Saturday or spending money or, like, getting new clothes or getting things for Elliot or, like, going on these vacations or whatever. So for the longest time, that's where we put our joy and our value and everything. It was just, you know, going to buy these things, going to do these things. And so we're kind of now dealing with, now that we try to be so intentional in questioning everything. Is this for kingdom purposes? Is this, you know, to serve Jesus? Is this intentional? Is this purposeful? So now that's kind of coming back to biting us because, you know, we were so used to that for so long that now until this sermon, we didn't even realize we were even doing it anymore until, um, you know, just us trying to be better with our budgeting, us trying to be better with our money, and then, you know, me especially, um, you know, when Andrew said, this out, cut that out, I would say, well, why? Why do we need to do that? You know, but then, um, you know, now that we have this and are able to be on guard, me especially, to be on guard and to stay um, awake as far as that goes, to realize when I'm just being plain out selfish and materialistic um, and separating wants and needs. And I told Andrew about it and I told Sarah about it. Um, so that's been something that we, and it's honestly like even embarrassing, like, it is such a struggle. It has been such a struggle to do that. Um, I think just because it was ingrained in us for so long, and for so long we didn't have the values that we have now in our hearts weren't soft like they are now for Jesus, and so it's still it's still investment. But Andrew, you know, made me feel better the other day when he said that it's, that we're realizing it, that we're trying, that we are questioning <coughs> what we're spending our money on and why we're doing it. Are we doing it because we need it? Or are we doing it just because? Um. So. When we teach the youth, <clears throat> we normally teach on what you've taught on as like a recap. We like dig deeper into something that you've talked about. So 
Um, so it was this sermon where I was really digging in. Um, and uh, it's really started to just change my perspective about pretty much everything. Um, so I was reading some verses in First Peter that talks about um, living as people who are free to not use your freedom as a cover-up for sin. Um, and it's really started to transform how I see everything, uh, just recognizing that um, we're supposed to be submitted and slaves to Christ, and, and that's it, and nothing else. Um, and recognizing that, like, there are so many things in this life that I feel like I'm a slave to, that I feel like I've given up my rights to this thing, and now they're my slave master, and I have to give in. Um, so, like, food being one of them. So every time we get paid, a lady brings in uh, donuts for everybody. And so just like a really silly example, but just like walking into the break room and really asking myself, am I free from this? Do I have the ability to say, no, I'm not going to eat that. Um, or am I going to say, yeah, I'm going to eat that. Uh, this donut, this really stupid thing, I'm going to give over my rights to this donut and it's going to be my slave master and I'm going to give into it. Um, Deliciously stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that's been like transforming how I see everything. Um, like somebody cuts me off in traffic. Am I going to respond in anger or am I going to have the freedom in Christ to say, hey, this person's actions don't control my emotions. I find my joy in Christ, I find my satisfaction in Christ, and that satisfies me in this moment, not what this person's doing on the road, not what this dessert is going to do, um, <coughs> or anything of that nature, um, or this TV show, or this movie. Um, and so, that's, it's just been like really transforming how I see just everything. I've taught on it twice. Um, in the youth, because summer is like such a huge part where you can do so many things in the summer, and it's just a mentality of, you know, spending time doing any types of entertainment, uh, eat a lot of food, there's a lot of outings that happen, um, and just really trying to think, what am I a slave to? Am I a slave to Christ, or am I really a slave to things of this world? And I have I exchanged my rights to materialism or um, gluttony um, that's really become my slave master so sat down with Jordan um, made up a plan for this summer things that we're going to try to cut out and things we're going to try to put in uh, to really hopefully get those chains off of those things that we might be slaves to good and there's you know, when you th when you think about this topic, there's there's a healthy balance between loving the world and and enjoying the world as God created it. Because in and of itself, there's really nothing in this world that's bad or evil, right? Like everything in this world, God created. It's when the enemy tempts us to either use the things that God has created in ways that they weren't meant to be used, or tempts us to use them excessively to the point that we love the gift more than the one who gave it to us, that's when we enter into sin, right? So I've taught on this topic before and had 
especially kids in my youth group, come and, and feel almost guilty about enjoying any type of thing that this world offers. And I think there's plenty of scripture verses that would show that to be an unhealthy response too, right? That God's created this world. He's created us. It created us to enjoy it. But again, it's a matter of not using it in, in ways that it wasn't meant to be used and, and not using it excessively to the point that we love the thing more than the one who gave us the thing. Um, that's where we can enjoy our kids, but when we elevate our kids above the glory of Christ in our life, now we've abused that thing that God has given to us. Any other thoughts on this topic? I think a lot of that comes down to the process of the Holy Spirit transforming your heart to have the right value and satisfaction in knowing God as your ultimate highest joy. Mm-hmm. Because we're always tempted with like benign good things of the world, which are not in and of themselves evil. Mm-hmm. So it really is that daily Romans 12 just being transformed inside out and trusting that God is going to set our desires rightly because you can get distracted by plenty of good, well-intentioned things and fall short of your relationship with God. Right. Yep, absolutely. And that's where I kind of share with you guys there's something inherently evil about coaching football. Um, But for me, instead of – I'd originally stepped into coaching football because I wanted to impact kids. I wanted to impact their hearts. I wanted to invest and pour into them. And I had very quickly turned it into, I want pats on the back on, at the end of the game on Friday night. I want to receive the glory from the accomplishments of what we have on the field. And so looking back last year, last year was the, the year that I invested the least amount of time in our players. Years before that in middle school, like that's, that's why I coached, right? Like that's, that's why I spent time coaching. That had shifted last year. And so I had taken something that was kind of, like you said, benign in the sense that it's not evil, but I had used it for evil purposes for my own self-glory. And being able to step back now this year, do things differently, um, I'm anticipating being able to use that once again for for kingdom purposes. All right. Um, So we spent two weeks on that topic. Then we went into chapter 19. We talked about being invited to the, um, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Summary sentence, we said those who fear and worship God alone through their daily acts are blessed to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Um, We said that in chapter 19, the people who are there are described as God's servants. They are described as those who fear him, and they are described as those who produce righteous deeds, that they are clothed in these deeds, right? And so... We spent time that week talking about the role of good works in the life of a believer. We talked about remembering all of the reasons that we have to worship God, that in heaven, God's acts will unify us in the ways that we worship him, that we can worship him because he brings vengeance on our enemies, that his judgments can't be reversed. We don't have to worry about him doing one thing and then it being changed later. We uh, worship him because both people that are small and great can be saved that he is unique in his holiness, and that ultimately everything in Revelation is about why we should not worship Babylon and we should worship God. And then we said, remember our responsibility to produce good. And we talked about the balance between God enabling us to do good. God's the one who equips us and gives us the desires to do good, but that we have a responsibility to pursue good with our choices, right? That we have a responsibility to put ourselves in position to do good things, right? So when we talk about service opportunities here at Sonoy, 
each one of us has a responsibility to choose to manipulate our calendars in such a way where we can give of ourselves to serve others. Okay, so the application question that I want to give us some time to talk about right now is how would you explain the role of good works in the life of a believer to somebody else? Any thoughts on on the role that good works play in the life of a believer? How can we how would we communicate that? What's their purpose? How do they how does how does that work itself out? Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter six that we shouldn't be like the hypocrites are that go around tooting their horns and trying to show that our good works that we, it would all, almost be done in secret so that our heavenly Father can see it openly. Yep. You know that it's almost a hidden part. Like I'm going to do this, but I really don't want anybody to see me doing this. Right. Yep. The good work. The good works are definitely meant for His glory and not our own glory, and so we have to be very guarded in. Our purpose and motivation, for sure. Yep. Um, just like you said, that good works do not equal salvation, but salvation equals the ability to produce good works through Jesus. So that through our salvation, we have a responsibility to do good. It's not the um, it's not the opposite. Yep. Yep. Um, going off that point, I've always understood that to be like an overflow of our salvation. So um, there was this sermon one time when I was in youth group and um, you know God pours uh, into us so we can pour out to other people Um, but if we keep pouring out before we're really filled up then we just have to keep asking God for more and more and more and more but if he's continually if we're allowing him to continually pour into us then it's just an automatic overflow into the world Um, and so that's how that's kind of how I see those good works it's not necessarily it'll it'll become um, subconscious the ways that I've tried to give the way I've tried to give it to you guys to remind you is that good works don't come before salvation they come after salvation right and Zacchaeus is a great example that we've used before there's nothing there's nothing that that makes Zacchaeus attractive to be saved prior to his conversion experience with Jesus at lunch right prior to that he's a thief he's a liar he's a deceiver probably has zero friends um and and is a lover of money to the point that he has he has gained money dishonestly right nothing about him warrants god saying i love you and you're welcomed into my presence right like like he's detestable and yet he comes out of that lunch being radically and eternally changed and what's his immediate response to being saved it's to now do good things right immediately he's wanting to make things right with those that he's wronged he's wanting to use his money in different ways now he's not clinging to it he's very free and open with it right good works come after salvation and they are a necessary part of our salvation because they show our salvation to be true Right? Like you don't have anywhere in scripture where somebody is labeled a Christian and they are not producing good works. It's just not there. Nor do you have anybody in scripture that I can find that is labeled a Christian who starts to go down a sinful path and is confronted with their sin and fails to repent of it and continues to be labeled a Christian. Right? Like people in in, in scripture that are Christians aren't perfect, right? Like they they wander and they, they start to live in sin, but when they are confronted with it, they repent and they turn. The Matthew 18 principle works, right? Like think about David. David, who's a man after God's own heart, 
wanders into sin, right? And the prophet Nathan comes and confronts him, and you don't see there being a resistance to repentance in David's heart, right? Like he's convicted. The Holy Spirit convicts him, brings about repentance in his life, and he makes things right. You don't have anywhere in Scripture a pattern of people being labeled Christians who aren't performing good works or who pursue sin and then are confronted with their sin and continue in their sin. Because the pattern in Scripture is that if they don't respond, if they don't repent, you treat them like an unbeliever. You don't continue to label them as a Christian. If they're not willing to repent of their individual sins that are being addressed, something's not right. And they may not be a Christian because what Christians look like, they're not perfect, right? But they produce good works. And when they produce sinful tendencies, when they are confronted with those things, they repent and turn from those things. They are continually repenting. In fact, in some, in some cultures, they're not called Christians, they're called repenters, like ongoing people who repent. Not one-time repenters, not I said a prayer individual, it's somebody who believes and repents. I know in, in Romania, some of the Christians, there, they're, they're, they're labeled as repenters, right? Because they're ongoing repenters, right? And that's, that's the pattern of what it looks like to be a Christian, one who produces good works. And if you're not clear on what Scripture says about good works, you can very quickly move into heresy, right? Because you can start to elevate man's good works above the sufficient work of Christ, right? Salvation is completely based on the work of Jesus Christ. Zacchaeus' salvation is based completely on what Jesus was going to do on the cross, not because he gave his money away, right? But the fact that he gave his money away shows he really connected the fact that something was wrong with him And the only way to fix him was Jesus. And when Jesus fixes him, his life looks radically different moving forward. That's the description of people that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's people who are um, God-fearers, people who are described as his servants, and those who produce righteous deeds. A lot of us probably know people who label themselves as Christians, but are not people we would describe as God's servants, They're not people we would describe as people who produce righteous deeds or people that fear God. That's the description that's on the invitation list to the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? We talked the next week about um, will you become supper. If you're not invited to supper, you become supper in chapter 19. When Jesus returns, he will do so in glory and power with his followers to execute justice on all those who have rejected and opposed him. We talked about rejoicing over the fact that Jesus comes in this type of glory and power. He's coming in faithfulness and truth. He's coming in unlimited sovereignty. He's coming as an outworking of the word. He's coming to establish his eternal reign. All of those descriptive uh, phrases are used in chapter 19. So we rejoice over Jesus coming, and we anticipate his coming in how we react to other people in our life. And so this week we spent a lot of time talking about how we do not need to seek vengeance towards others. We don't need to retaliate towards others because we know Jesus is coming with justice. And, and we talked about the fact that the only way someone who's being persecuted for their faith doesn't fight back is because they strongly believe that Jesus is coming to take care of that for them at some point, right? And so it enables us to love our enemies. It enables us to pray for our enemies because our enemies are not gonna be off the hook, their, their sin will be dealt with either on the cross or when Jesus comes back, right? Um, and so from an application standpoint that we, we talked about keep believing in Jesus. He is coming back. Keep obeying Jesus to repent of any areas where we're not 
essentially from that picture, Jesus comes back riding on a white horse and all of his followers on similar white horses following him. And so I challenged you, the picture is that Jesus rides on a horse and his followers follow him. Is there any area of our life where our horse is riding off in a different direction and not following Jesus? Right? So we want to repent of those areas and then keep loving our enemies. We don't have to fight back. We can trust that God will deal with them. It was in that sermon that we also talked about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus and it being the thing that keeps us believing. And so the application question that I want us to just talk about briefly right now is why should the resurrection of Jesus be our talking point when dealing with someone who is wandering from the faith? Why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? Why is that? Why did I tell you that's kind of the the reason that I won't abandon the faith? That's what Christianity hinges on. Okay. Yeah, Christianity hinges on that belief, right? Yeah, if that's false, then everything else that happens after is all make believe. But if that's true, and then we can believe everything that happens after with Paul and um, the disciples going and yeah. spreading the word. Yeah. It'd be the fear factor because it says if Jesus resurrected, then he's going to come back. And if he's going to come back, do you want to be caught wandering from the faith when he comes back? The answer is no, because you would have fear, and then the fear of authority prompts good behavior. Yep. Yeah, the only reason to walk away from the faith is to believe that Jesus is dead. Therefore, he's not coming back, right? But if Jesus is alive, then he is coming back, is what Acts 17 says, that God has given us assurance that Jesus is coming back by raising him from the dead. He is alive and well, and he will return. But a lot of people want to wander from the faith from all, for all other kinds of reasons, right? We talked about the disappointment levels and why people wander from the faith. I saw a, a trailer for a new Christian movie that's coming out called Indivisible. Um, anybody seen this or heard of this movie yet? It's, it's, a, it's a movie about an army. Cha- it's supposed to be based on a true story, but about an army chaplain and his family. Um, and, and one of the scenes, he's angry at God because some of the guys underneath him die in combat. Right? They, they go on like a, a run or something, and they're, and they're, they're hit with, um, with bombs or explosives, and they die. And so he's, he's kind of screaming. I think it may be his mentor. You know, I trusted God to take care of these guys. I prayed and trusted that God would take care of them, and he didn't. And the mentor's response is, you trusted God to act the way that you thought he should act is really what you're talking about, Right? Like, you believed that God should do it your way, and when he didn't, you were disappointed in God. That's not a reason to walk away from the faith, right? We only walk away from the faith if it's proven that Jesus is dead, right? God will always act in ways that are contrary to the ways that we want him to act. Until, until we see him for who he is, until we're perfected, God will always do things differently than we choose for him to do them. Um, but the assurance is that Romans eight twenty eight says everything that he's doing is for the good of his people. Right, And so we can be thankful that he does things differently than we want him to do them because that means they're probably better than the ways that we wanted him to act. All right, uh, And then lastly, last week we talked about the second coming. We said the second coming of Jesus is the ultimate hope for the believer as it brings resurrection, judgment, and cosmic renewal, which should lead us towards increased purity, right priorities, and enduring perseverance. All right, We said... Um, some key truths about the second coming. His return is certain. It can't be predicted. He delays his return so that people can be saved. It will be a very personable and visible return when he does come. 
I think the big thing for me is that Scripture time and time again tells us we have enough information about what it looks like for Jesus to come back to be encouraged and to encourage others. That there's still a lot of questions, but there is enough answers that provides encouragement that we need. It promises our own resurrection when Jesus comes back. It marks the end of death. Judgment and commendation are coming when he returns. When he comes, he fixes the world, meaning there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering, and we get to enjoy an eternal reign of his without those things, right? So we said in response to that, we need to be challenged in our purity, that our purity and our eagerness for him to return are linked together. Talked about being mindful of our priorities. Don't love the world and grow discouraged in trials because um, this world's passing away, as are our trials, and that rest is coming according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And then lastly, be hopeful about your perseverance. So many scriptures that talk about us um, being reasons why we can be confident because God is the one who will preserve us till the very end. Therefore, when we see signs of his coming, the wars, the rumors of wars, the earthquakes, we can be encouraged in the midst of those things because it reminds us that it's getting closer to the time that Jesus comes back. I think the last question that I wanted to leave you with is, is, is flows out of the application from last week. I told you to be praying more consistently for Jesus to come back. Would you want Jesus to come back today if the option was yours? Why or why not? Right? Like if, if, if it was completely up to you, Jesus can come back today or we can continue to push it off into the future. Would you choose for him to come back today or would you say, eh, let's put it off a little bit longer? And if you would say no to him coming back today, what's the motivation for that, right? Immediately, some of us would probably think, well, I've still got people in my life that are, that are not saved. But I think there's probably more to it than that. A lot of us love some things about our life, love some things about this world, and we're not necessarily ready for those things to end, right? Um, it's those things that, that probably motivate us more than unsaved loved ones in not wanting Jesus to come back today. I would challenge you to kind of think through that. Why would you not want Jesus to come back today? And that may give you some insight into things that you may love too much because you're not ready to give those things up. Because when Jesus comes back, like everything changes, right? Like everything changes. Are you okay with everything changing? And if not, maybe do some self-evaluation as to why. Why would you not be okay with Jesus coming back today? Um, Because we certainly should want him to. With, With all the things that we've talked about that will happen when he does come back, We should certainly crave for him to come back today. All right, I'm gonna pray for us and then we are going to um, respond with a a time of partaking of the Lord's Supper. Um, Just to give clarification, because I know we have some people visiting as to what we believe about the Lord's Supper here so there's no confusion or questions there. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the passage that we typically go to in regards to the Lord's Supper. Um, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so here at Sovereign Hope, we believe that if you're a believer, then you are invited to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. So you do not have to be a member of our church to do so. All believers are invited to do this, but we do uh, ask that you withhold it for believers only. And so this is a, a opportunity for us to have conversations with our kids, to dialogue with our kids about why we do this, 
but not to have them engage in it with us until they're professing believers, right? Because what is pictured here is the the body of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus, Jesus coming to be perfect for us, to to, to live and, and to be righteous on our behalf, right? The, the juice represents the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the sacrificial um, work of Jesus where our sins are atoned for, our sins are forgiven, the wrath of God has been satisfied on our account, right? And so we celebrate that this morning in remembrance of the work of Jesus that as Zacchaeus would have stated, I'm not savable on my own, right? My good works are insufficient. I, I'm detestable in the holiness of God, and yet because of Jesus, I can be accepted because of his righteousness, because of his work. So Jesus earns righteousness for us through his perfection, his perfect life, but he also allows us to then receive that righteousness by forgiving us of our sins through his sacrificial death. He dies on the cross. He absorbs God's wrath. We celebrate that together today, and in in anticipation of his return, we will do so until he comes back, and then when he comes back, we'll just eat with him right? We won't have to do this anymore. We'll just eat and celebrate him in person. Um, so I want to invite you to partake this morning. Um, I'm going to pray. You're welcome to, to pray on your own as well. Um, we do believe that this is a public declaration to everybody here that you are still choosing Jesus. And so it needs to be an accurate reflection that you're still choosing Jesus. Doesn't mean you had a perfect week. Doesn't mean you went without sin this week, right? But it does mean that you're still choosing Jesus over your sin, that you still want Jesus, you're not wandering away from the faith and choosing sinful things over Jesus, that you still want Jesus. And so I encourage you to pray um, and to reflect. We'll have some music playing. Since Tyson's not here, we won't sing as we would normally do, um, but we'll have some music playing. You're invited to come and partake in the back um, as you're led, and then after everybody's had a sufficient time to do so, I'll close this out in prayer. All right. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the time to, to pause and to reflect on the things that you've been teaching us, to stop and to question, uh, to make sure that we fully understand what's at stake, um, to have some opportunity to talk about application and how this gets fleshed out in our own lives. Father, I pray that we would be diligent to be uh, doers of the word as we're faithful to hear it, um, that we wouldn't just come each Sunday and and hear sermon after sermon after sermon and it not change us. And so God, I pray that today as we ask for all of our application Sundays, that it would be a day for us to pause and to remind ourselves of the importance of doing the things that we're hearing. Uh, We thank you for for your word. We thank you for the things that you've shown us over the past six, seven weeks, things that we've been able to learn. Give us the wisdom now to apply it to our lives individually, to make sure that we are, are doing the things that that our salvation calls us to. Um, Father, we're thankful that you empower us to do this, um, that, that we certainly aren't saved because of good works prior to salvation, nor are we saved after salvation because of our good works, but that our good works are simply a, a tool that you use to bring glory to yourself. Um, and so we thank you for that, Father. Help us to be faithful in the ways that you've called us to be. God, we want to be described as your servants. We want to be described as people who fear you. We want to be described as, um, as people who produce righteous deeds. God, give us the humility to respond uh, when we're confronted with our sins this week, whether that's through the Holy Spirit's conviction, whether that's through a, a brother and sister in Christ that um, draws our attention to something. Help us to, in humility, respond to those things and to confess and to repent. 
God, we want that to be a, a description of our life, that we are ongoing repenters. Father, we thank you for the chance to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. It's a reminder to us that, that our good works don't save us, that it's certainly necessary for Jesus to be our Savior. And so, God, we rejoice over the fact that Christ is righteous. We rejoice over the fact that you are a just God and that in your justice you have chosen to pour out your wrath upon your Son versus us. We certainly celebrate and praise you and thank you for that today. Lord, I pray that we would continue to persevere into the end. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who ensures us that we will, who seals us until the day of that redemption. Pray that you would encourage us as we partake, encourage us in our own life and the things that you're doing, but encourage us as well as we see others partake, that you're at work in the lives of other people around us as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.